Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 24 of Cardboard Time. This is Arwen, and I am flying solo once again today, but we do have plenty to talk about on this episode, including my experience at DragonCon, and let me tell you what a time that I had down there. I had some amazing gameplay, some great friends that I got to see and reconnect with, and some really great food as well. This was my first DragonCon out since I came out and uh, said that I was going to start transitioning. A lot of things that I really took for granted pre-transition, like getting on an airplane, where you had to produce documentation and go through security and that, where I was just like, okay, this is a regular everyday occurrence. Not so much anymore. There's a little bit of nervousness, you know, going through TSA and that, but I have to say I was fine. My worries were pretty much unfounded. So everything went really well. Got to reconnect with some friends, not only from down in the Atlanta area, but also the Michiganders, we call them, uh, A couple of them came down from Michigan as well and met us down there, as well as our good friends Mike and Elaine from Sandusky. So really great time. I really remember what I missed about Dragon Con. Probably going to go next year, and then that might be it for a couple of years as we go and do some different things. So no regrets. Glad that I went and had a great experience. Well, on to the beer of the day. Today's beer of the day is the Shade by Mad Tree Brewing Company out of Cincinnati, Ohio. It was pretty inoffensive, but it also really seemed to be lacking any depth of flavor. It had a couple of hints of blackberry and sea salt, but I was really hoping for a little bit more punch, and I gave it a three. Again, it, it wasn't offensive or anything. It just really didn't do much. It was just kind of standard middle of the road. So that was the Shade by Mad Tree Brewing Company. And as we always do, it's time to check the shelf of shame. And you're probably wondering if you listened to the last episode, Arwen, what did you do while you were down at Dragon Con? Did you buy more games? The answer is yes. Um, Did you (laughs) keep your promise to try to play more games than you bought? And the answer is yes. I am down to 155 games on my shelf of shame, and that is down five from the last time that we spoke. So, yeah, there's a little bit of a cheat in there because the last time that I recorded, you know, I I had a, a little bit more of a gap than I usually do. But at the same time, I'm very proud of myself because I went to a convention and didn't go overboard. Uh, I kind of went overboard before the convention, but that's a different story. I did stop at my favorite game store that I talk about all the time. Got a lot of games up here in Ohio. I had six new additions. Three of them came from GOTS, and we'll talk about the other three. And those three were Fantastic Factories, Point Salad, both of those we will talk about on this episode, and also Ramen Ramen. I picked up Tiny Epic Pirates down at the Renaissance Festival down by Cincinnati. I did get to play that as well. And the three games that I bought from GOTS, I also got to play. 
And then finally, I stopped by the deep water booth at DragonCon, and I got talked into picking two more games up. One was Seven Summits, which is the only game on my new editions that I didn't get to play. And then Monstrosity, uh, which I have heard Aaron from Boards Alive rave about for a long, long time. So I figured, okay, I've, I've got to pick this one up and try it. I'm in a group setting, so I should be able to get it out fairly easy to the table. And we did. Uh, and we are going to talk about this one as well. So you're probably asking yourself, Arwen, if you added six, you must have played quite a bit, and I did. In addition to the games that I had talked about above, I also played Arcane Bakery Clash and Seasons of Rice, which are two button-shy games. I got to play Concordia Venus, which I think just about everybody that follows my Instagram knows about my love for Concordia. It's such an amazing, amazing game. If you haven't tried it, get out there, try it, get this game to the table. It's so good. Heart of Crown, I also got to the table, and we will be talking about that on this episode. Ultra Tiny Epic Kingdoms came out as well, and that is a game that has been on my shelf forever, probably since 2016, that I got in one of those board game bento boxes uh, when I was still getting those and really building up my collection with a lot of games that some of which I still haven't played to this day. And then finally, Liberation, another button shy game, two players. I highly recommend this one. I'm not going to talk about it in depth, but I did want to say what a great time I had with Liberation. If you are familiar with Star Wars Rebellion, this is a very tiny, compact version of that kind of gameplay. The hidden base where one side's trying to track down the other player, the other player's trying to outlast their opponent. It takes up a tiny footprint and a much, much smaller amount of time than Star Wars Rebellion. So that was my shelf of shame. A lot to talk about this week for sure. A lot of activity, but I have to say that I'm fairly proud of myself. And now on to what I've been playing. And the first game that I want to talk about is Fantastic Factories from 2019. It plays one to five players in 45 to 60 minutes, designed by Joseph Z. Chen and Justin Faulkner. And artist is Joseph C. Chen, published by Metafactory Games and Deepwater Games. In Fantastic Factories, you race to manufacture the most goods or build the most prestigious buildings. Each round is split into two phases, the market phase and the work phase. During the market phase, you choose to either acquire a new blueprint for free or pay to hire a contractor. Blueprints are used to construct new factories during the work phase, while contractors can be used to reinforce your strategy by providing resources or allowing you to roll additional dice. During the work phase, all players simultaneously roll their dice and use their dice as workers to run factories. Factories, again, start as blueprints and then need to be constructed. Once you construct a factory, it can be used once on each turn. 
Worker placement can happen in any order, and figuring out the correct sequence can enable a powerful chain of actions. Once any player has manufactured 12 goods or constructed 10 buildings, the game end is triggered and one additional and final round is played. The player with the most points wins between a combination of building prestige and manufactured goods. So anybody who listens to this channel on a regular basis knows my affinity for engine building games. And one of the big things that especially Justin talks about when it comes to engine building games is how we get excited about building an engine, building it up, building it up. And it seems like just as it's getting to its peak and working as well as we want it to, the game's over. So that is something that Fantastic Factories does is it goes one more round to allow you to maybe do a little bit more engine building, but to really run that engine and to really get to experience the satisfaction of of having that engine kind of do its thing. I really, really love that. And that is a awesome feature of this game. I'm a huge fan of tableau building, engine building, uh, and dice placement to begin with. So this kind of makes sense for me that I would enjoy this. This does accommodate multiple unique play styles. So if you want mitigation, you construct the buildings that allow for that. If you want to take your chances, even the worst roles that you get will allow for some resource development opportunities so that you're helped out in your next turn. I did find that I could play this multiple different ways, try different strategies, and all of them seem to have some sort of value. Maybe not as much as others, but there was a validity to just about anything that I built up. Uh, after multiple games, I was still finding combinations I hadn't seen. I do feel like my discoveries in this are getting fewer and farther between, though. It does feel like I'm starting to see a lot of the same buildings. Having to make the decision which buildings to spend to build others is really tough at times, but it's a very fun choice. So when you construct a building, you have to discard a building of the same type out of your hand. So you're always making a choice on what to spend which is difficult because usually you just want to build everything. The game forces you to make that choice, which is also nice because when you have a high card draw economy, now that's actually worth something till the end of the game because you're using those cards to build other cards. Really cool. I really like that as well. The artwork was fun. I really liked it, but I like mechanical artwork. I like kind of quirky, mechanical, very industrial artwork. I feel like others might be a little bit turned off with that. They might feel it's a little too mechanical or a little too plain, but there are some hidden surprises for very keen eyes. I'll throw that out there. I enjoyed it. Again, others might not. The solo mode also works extremely well with very little upkeep. It's still an incredibly fun puzzle. Uh, you don't have to do much to really keep it running, and you're back up and running on your turn building up your engine. I barely beat out the medium level, so there's definitely some challenge coming up for me as well with that solo mode. 
Finally, I've heard the expansion does add a little bit more interactivity between players. So I think there's two expansions and one of them adds more of a take that element, uh, which is great because you're able to add it in and take it out as you have your different player groups and play styles. Some people don't like take that. Uh, some people do. So it's really nice that you're able to add that in or take that out as you like if you get that expansion. So as far as my final judgment goes, give me more expansions of this game. As long as they can keep performing at this level and giving me this same amount of fun, I want more of this. This one's staying on the shelf. Played it quite a few times. Played it with some different people. All of them really enjoyed it. I think this is one, uh, Justin, if you're listening, you would really, really like. Again, this is going absolutely nowhere. I loved this game, and I'm going to be getting more of it. That is Fantastic Factories. Well, another game that we got out at DragonCon was Point Salad from 2019. This plays two to six players in 15 to 30 minutes, designed by Molly Johnson, Robert Melvin, and Sean Stankiewicz. The artist is Dylan Mangini, and this was published by AEG. Point Salad is all about scoring points. The cards in Point Salad are two-sided. One has a point scoring condition on it, and the other has a vegetable on it. On a player's turn, they will either take one point card from the draw stacks or two vegetables from the field of six, which are then replenished from the draw stacks. If they need to, players can also turn one of their point cards from the point side to the veggie side. Once all the cards have been acquired, players score the point cards, and the player with the most points wins. And I love these easy descriptions. I have a feeling that I may have some more complicated games coming up in my future to describe, so I'm enjoying the rest while I have it now. This game, in in one word, is fun. Every single game is unique due to the different scoring conditions. They never quite come out the same way twice. And we played multiple, multiple rounds of this in a row at Dragon Con. We got our money's worth out of this game and none of the games even looked remotely similar. So basically you have the choice of, do I want to keep bringing in more point scoring conditions or do I want to try to build up the ability to score those points by building up my veggie tableau. Like I said, we sat and played multiple rounds of this. It moves very quickly. You can just crank through game after game after game. Some of the games that we had were like 10 minutes long. I mean, it didn't even hit that 15 to 30 minute mark. It just flew by. This game does play completely differently at two than it does at six. So if you play with two players, it's very, very, very tight and strategic. You're trying to basically outwit your opponent. You're taking the cards that they need. You're taking their point conditions that they need. You're very much aware of what they're trying to do. And then six tends to be more towards, I need to focus on my own hand. I know in general, maybe what some of my opponents are 
doing, but really I need to build up my own engine. And I taught this game in really all of two minutes with a group that had a hugely varied skill level. So everyone understood it, the iconography was clear, and I had absolutely no problem getting people engaged in this game. So that's a really big thing for me because I teach a lot of games, as you all know. The one caveat that I do have to this game is that at the lower player counts, setup can be a little bit of a pain. You have to construct the deck based on the player count. So at six, you just throw all the cards in, shuffle them up, deal them out, and you're good to go. At two, you have to take, I think, six of each vegetable and then put that into the deck. I will say that it was nice that there were 18 veggies. So if you constructed that deck of six veggies a piece, you still had two more decks to construct without seeing any of the same cards. Uh, so that did make that nice. But the act of having to do that and separate everything out was a little bit of a pain. It was worth it, in my opinion, to be able to play this game multiple, multiple times. So my final judgment is that this game is easily headed to the top of my filler and entry gamer charts. This was a quick to understand but satisfying light game, and this one is absolutely staying on the shelf. And I have to give a shout out to Heather at Gots A Lot Of Games for posting about this because it was really at the top of my list of things to check out. After seeing her post about it, I thought that I needed to get it and boy am I glad that I did. Definitely one to check out as the holidays are rapidly approaching and we're going to be indoors a little bit more, maybe gathering with our families. This one one is super, super easy to teach, and I would highly recommend Point Salad. Well, the next game that I want to talk about is Heart of Crown, all the way back from 2011. Heart of Crown plays from two to four players in 30 to 60 minutes. It was designed by Ginkgo. The artists were Haniwa, Yuji Humaki, Midi Lore, Chosuki Oide, Yuki Takahata, and Namigi Toto, published by Japanime Games. Heart of Crown is a deck-building game that sees players as an influential figure in an empire whose emperor has passed away without naming a successor. Your goal is to try to garner enough influence, which are succession points, to allow the princess you've chosen to back the throne. During the beginning of the game, players will take turns playing cards to allow them to better their decks through coins and actions. At one point, you must declare your support for a princess by paying six coins. Once a player has declared their support for a princess, they can then begin spending their turn acquiring victory points by playing them out of their hand. The first player to 20 points triggers a coronation in which players have one more round to interrupt the coronation by getting to 20 points themselves or reducing that player below 20 points. If the coronation is not interrupted, that player wins. If it is, then the first player to 30 points wins. So a little bit of a kind of a complicated explanation, but it's really, really not that bad. Once you kind of get the flow of the game, it's pretty streamlined. 
And it's really another one of those games where the description sounds more complicated than it actually is. I would say that the actual complexity of this game is about one step above Dominion, which is a game that I love and I will reference quite a bit during this review. However, this game does fix the one major gripe that I had with Dominion. In Dominion, you have one action to start off with on your turn that can be chained to another through an action keyword on the card. So it'll say plus one action, you get to take another action. This just basically adds an arrow to the card and it lets you know that you can take another action or play another currency card. If you can play two more actions, it has two arrows on the card. I love this. I thought that this was quite honestly genius. I could use this in Dominion. I actually thought about printing out little markers to put on my cards in Dominion to just say, you can take another action and I can track this. That was the biggest gripe that I had with Dominion and this fixed it. Each princess in this game has a different bonus effect, so players can support one that aligns with their strategy and they can kind of build around that princess. And you never quite know what players are going to do as far as who they're going to back. So you have to keep on your toes a little bit and A, try to get the one that you really want, or B, keep your strategy flexible enough that it doesn't really matter which one you get. And then once you find out, you can kind of solidify your strategy a little bit more. There's a really interesting pre and post princess support dynamic. So before you support a princess, it's all about getting your monetary engine build up. And then after you support one, it's all about getting your victory point or support point acquisition engine built up. So I want to get a bunch of money. Well, money's important, but it's not the most important thing. Let me get some victory points. Let me make sure that I can get those victory points out onto the table because that's the only place that they actually count. You have to spend a turn dumping victory points out of your hand onto the table for them to actually count towards your win condition. So in comparison to Dominion, this is very similar because Dominion, you start at one point just hitting a switch and acquiring victory points. And this is much the same, but you're doing it through the actual mechanism of playing those victory points in your tableau. It is definitely a different dynamic and one that was a, a hugely welcome change because I've played a lot of deck builders and some of them start to look the same after a while. There's a a great variety right out of the base box with a lot of cards included. Again, very similar to Dominion, uh, where you have a lot of different cards that you can kind of swap in and out depending on your play style, how you want to build up that market. So I give them a lot of credit for continuing that and giving a lot of replayability right out of that base box. So my final judgment, uh, this is another deck building game, and I have a ton of deck building games. I feel like I've got six Dominions. I've got the DC deck builder, legendary, uh, legendary villains, legendary aliens, but I do 
again, feel that it's different enough from the rest of the games on my shelf to earn its spot. It does make me think that one or two of the standard deck building games on my shelf might be in jeopardy of leaving, though. And again, that might be more of those DC deck builders, kind of the ones I don't think about that much as I go back to, hey, let's get a deck builder out tonight. What can we get out? And I'm thinking a couple of those might hit the sell pile fairly shortly. I would definitely highly recommend checking out Heart of Crown if you're looking for a deck builder that's still got those core mechanisms, but just has something a little bit different to it. Really unique system. Give them a lot of credit. All the way back in 2011, they were doing something different that I haven't seen and glad to have played Heart of Crown. And the final game that we're going to review on this episode is Monstrosity from 2020, which plays three to eight players in five to 30 minutes, designed and I believe drawn by Eric Slavson published by Deepwater Games. From the publisher's description, imagine seeing a real alien stomping through your backyard. Now imagine describing what it looked like to a police sketch artist. That is exactly what you're expected to do while playing the frantic drawing party game Monstrosity. One player known as The Witness has 20 seconds to examine a picture of a bizarre-looking creature. Then they must describe it to the rest of the players, known as sketch artists. At the end of the round, the witness awards points to the artist who is able to most closely match the monster seen by the witness. The witness can also get a point for their description if they match who the players vote as the best artist. So again, this one was one that I heard Aaron from Boards Alive talk about so much. Finally, I just got tired of him, you know, talking about it. And I I need to see this. I, I need to see how good this game is. Because I trust Aaron in his judgment. I feel like, you know, we agree on a lot of things. So I had to check this out. This is hands down going to be one of my favorite party games of the year. And I know that I had talked about Pictomania a few episodes ago, which is another great drawing game. Don't get me wrong. But this one is amazing. I hate drawing. As many of you know that have listened for a long time, I am horrible at drawing. Much reviled across the land. But this is really another game that really makes you not care about that. I think my favorite part of the game is being the witness. It's hectic fun. You have 20 seconds. You're trying to basically memorize as much about this this picture that you saw, and then you have to recall everything. I won't give any spoilers because the the game is actually very good at separating the packs and giving you a little card that basically says, hey, don't open this before you're ready to play because you don't want to be spoiled. The aliens get really weird. There's some really weird shapes, some really weird designs in there. I love it. I, I think the artwork is magnificent in this. It's bizarre, but it works so incredibly well because you hear the description of this monster that has these weird features and all of a sudden you're just looking at them as as the sketch artist and being like they they had what as a body really it's an experience that i can't do justice to without having you see these cards there were multiple laugh out loud moments 
just what you want in a party game. You want those moments where you're going to laugh out loud and and just be like, oh my God, they're describing this wrong. And then you see this monster card and it's like, no, they were, they were right. Or in my case, you're completely, absolutely wrong. And then everybody's mad at you for uh, describing so poorly. And again, uh, getting back to being able to draw well, there is somewhat of a disadvantage to not being able to draw well in this game. But the game tends to be more about who matched the description the best. So that does really help out with people who can't draw as well, you know, like like me. So my final judgment for this is if you're looking for another solid party game to add to your arsenal, just get this. Seriously, get this yesterday. No, wait, finish the podcast first and then go out and get this. I will be teaching this game a lot in the future because it's not going anywhere. We have a couple of events coming up and this will be one that I cannot wait to teach people just as a beginner opener game. I might not go with the filler on this. I think it's a great opener. It's a great closer or a great, hey, let's just have something to not really have to think about. We're just going to, you know, hang out, have some drinks, have some snacks, and let's just get together and enjoy each other's company. This is going to be a great game to do that with. So with the combo of this and point salad, I mean, your holiday needs are pretty much taken care of. I'm just saying, I'm helping you out early this year. I'm not going to wait until the last minute like I did last year. So this is another recommendation for Monstrosity. I feel like with recent events that it's kind of important now to talk about how important it is to recognize the type of environment that we're creating for people in the hobby, especially when it comes to newcomers. Uh, Case in point, I recently recommended a local gaming establishment to a mother that had a hard time getting her transgender daughter out of the house as a way of kind of providing a fun, safe environment for her to be in. Uh, That was one thing that she noted. She said, my daughter's a huge gamer. She loves games. What could you recommend that may be able to get her out of the house? And as a trans person, I get it. There's some days, you know, especially early on in my transition, that I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't know what people were going to say, what people were going to think. And I think eventually you get over a lot of that, but especially in the early days of a transition, you have that anxiety. That's something that you have to deal with. So I recommended a local establishment and said, these people will treat you well. Hopefully uh, she has fun. And her mother actually followed up with me at a local event after that, and they had a great time. She felt comfortable because the environment, uh, she even talked about when they could go back and do more. So because everyone was so nice to her, she might take this momentum and get out, do things, have more social interactions, make more friends, just be more active. And this simple act of people being decent was a huge social boost to her. So I'm going to ask you to kind of step back and put yourself in her shoes. And imagine if she hadn't been met with such niceness. Imagine if she had been met with negativity and the mental effect that that might have had on her. 
We can never really know what others are going through just by looking at them. In life, we kind of have to choose what kind of environment we're going to support and create for others. Are we going to just be exclusive or are we going to invite others in? Bringing others to the table not only allows you to play more games with more people, but it might just turn someone else's day around. Someone who's struggling, someone who has anxiety about getting out, about how they're going to be treated. So think about what kind of environment you're setting at your table the next time that you're out. So in short, like Bill and Ted said, just be excellent to each other. It doesn't cost anything. It's just a matter of being decent to people. And if you can't do that, at least don't be a dick. I just wanted to share that. I thought that it was important. I thought that it needed to be said in the environment that we're currently in in this hobby right now. Just something to think about. And if you're listening to this as it debuts, it is the 21st of September or after. Uh, I don't know when you're listening to this, but it is sometime either during or after the 21st. I am preparing for Origins. I'm getting ready. I have been ready for this for a long time, and I'm super excited. I just wanted to do a little preview, kind of what I'm looking forward to. I'm recording this a little bit early. I'm recording it on the Friday before, so the 17th. So this is current as of September 17th. Basically, the publisher list that was published on BoardGameGeek of what everybody is going to be exhibiting. And I know that there's certain publishers that aren't on that list right now that I don't know what they're bringing yet. But as far as what's on there and what's current, uh, these are the ones I'm going to talk about. Uh, I marked two things as absolute must-haves, and they're both expansions. Neither of them are absolute new games to me. Uh, one is the Expedition Leaders expansion for the Lost Ruins of Arnak, and the other is the Light and Shadow uh, expansion for Onitama. So Onitama, probably my favorite two-player abstract game. It's kind of in a race right now between Onitama and War Chest at this moment. But the Lost Ruins of Arnak, I tested the solo mode for it a little while back, and I need more. I, I love this game. And having uh, expedition leaders with their own associated decks and providing kind of a starting strategy and direction, uh, especially for newer players, if they can kind of pick up on that. Really cool. I, I like the concept of that. Those two are must-haves for me. So on the games that I'm looking forward to checking out, so going down the list, the first one was the Belgian Beers Race by Grand Gamers Guild, so a lot of, a lot of uh, alliteration in there. I did pass this one up on Kickstarter. It, it's a little pricey, I've got to say, but I'm sure with the components and everything, it's, it's probably worth it. I did pass it up on Kickstarter. I love the premise of it. You're biking around Belgium or you're picking up rides to get to uh, these different breweries to try all these different beers. So one thing that I liked in there that they did was not to promote drinking and driving. You know, they're making sure that everybody's uh, going and, and getting their own rides, um, you know, whether it be a bike 
or getting a, a ride from somebody else. So that was Belgian beers race and everybody knows my affinity for Belgian beers. So this is a, a great fit. I'd like to try this one out before I buy it. I didn't have the opportunity to check out a digital version of it uh, while it was up on Kickstarter. So hopefully I'm afforded the opportunity to uh, get to play around of it and then I can make my decision from there. Factory 42 by Dragon Dawn Productions looks very, very interesting. Got a lot of things I like, worker placements, uh, cube towers, and steampunk dwarves, which are also reimagined in 1920s Soviet propaganda. So really pretty unique theme in addition to cube towers and worker placement. Sounds pretty much right up my alley. It sounds like it takes a little bit of a sarcastic tone, a little tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, but very unique. Fairly interested in Factory 42. And this next game, a lot of you might be familiar with if you grew up in the same era as I did, and that is Key to the Kingdom. Uh, Restoration Games is bringing that back, and... I'm not entirely sure if I've talked about restoration offerings on the podcast before. The remake of Fireball Island was great. I do feel like the storage solution uh, could have been a little bit more well thought out, but uh, they did give a discount to get a storage solution. So they did try to, to make right on that. And then Stop Thief was another game of theirs that I wasn't really enamored with at all. So still a little bit iffy on restoration offerings, but this was always a game that I wanted to play as a kid. The next game is The Loop. Uh, by Pandasaurus Games, and I love the idea of a cooperative engine builder with a time travel theme and a cube tower. Lots of cube towers in this, but love cube towers. This seems really cool. I've been hearing a lot of this on social media. And another game that I've heard a lot about on social media is On The Rocks. And this one might be a good replacement for Last Call, the bartender game. This one's been all over social media. A lot of people have been talking about it on my feed. So definitely one that has kind of piqued my interest. Another game that I'm really interested to see is Role Player Adventures by Thunderworks Games. And I'm extremely curious to see how they're going to translate role player into a cooperative uh, kind of exploration game. You know, after seeing how Dice Throne Adventures turned out, I'm really curious to see how good this one's going to be. I really love Dice Throne Adventures, so this one is definitely on my radar. And then finally, The Night Cage is another game that's been kind of invading my social media and stalking in a little bit this week. It's a lot darker game than I'm used to uh, than my standard fare. It's a very unique theme. It's very dark. It, it sounds like it's different enough from Subterra that it's worth looking at. Uh, so we'll we'll see. We'll we'll try to get a game in, and we'll see how well the Night Cage fares. So that's kind of my little origins preview for you. Just what I'm looking forward to uh, checking out and seeing. I'm also looking forward to beers and food. Again, really looking forward to this. So 
this is it. It's our last podcast before Origins. The next time that you hear from me on the microphone, it is going to be either during or after Origins 2021. So I'm going to implore you that if you are going down there, please reach out to me. We can meet up, have a beer, play a game or two. I'm looking forward to seeing all of you there. So we'll talk after Origins. I'm going to be there Thursday through Sunday. I might live stream. I might not. I don't know yet. We'll see how the weekend goes. So a final point of action, please make sure that you visit our brand new website at CardboardTime.com. Allie did such a wonderful job getting the initial design done. We're going to work on it a little bit more. Uh, It has all the socials I'm about to mention, as well as a link to see my shelf of shame on Board Game Geek in real time so you can follow along and see how I'm doing, you know, and check up on me during the week in between these two-week sessions so that you kind of know, oh my God, she's gone off the rails. And if you see something on there that you want to hear about next, just let me know. Uh, And to do that, you can go to Facebook. You can go to Instagram and Twitter at cardboard underscore time. You can check out our Board Game Geek podcast page. And any questions, suggestions, or ideas for discussion topics, please email cardboardtime at gmail.com. As always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks after Origins for another episode of Cardboard Time. Happy gaming, everyone.